0: The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. Friends, welcome to Convergence tonight. Uh, my name is John. I'm the director here. And, uh, we're in this series called Apocalypse. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad, uh, for those of you who have been able to go from the, from the start with us, we are working through this book, um, of Revelation. One of the reasons why we are doing that is because of... Uh, directly related, I guess I would say, to a headline that maybe some of you even caught today. I was uh, I was sent it earlier. That apparently the world's going to end this weekend on the 21st. Okay? Probably. Maybe. Yeah. So, Brenna would like you to know that it's a really good reason to be on the retreat this weekend because... <laughs> If it's going to end, you might as well be up on top high somewhere um, talking about Jesus. Uh, But I I, I say that jokingly because unfortunately um, it's I want to laugh at it because it almost for me is so sad because when we look at this book, it misses the point of where most of us live. And I know that when predictions come and go, and, and this particular individual has already uh, predicted something that didn't come through, and so you know you, you keep kind of adjusting, you keep kind of tweaking it so that it makes sense, that the effect is it can make us feel like Revelation is a book that uh, is not ours. So Revelation becomes a book that is sort of for entertainment, and movies can have a whole lot of fun with the imagery on it, or it becomes a book of predictions that come and go. Neither of those actually impact Our daily life. And yet, I believe Revelation actually has a lot to say about who we are and what we do right now. In particular, it has a lot to say about what is it that we are called to do has to do with calling. All of us are wrestling at some point with this idea of calling. And we want to know what is it that we do so that we can be a, a solid person, somebody who stands in the midst of, of a world that feels chaotic and also has influence. All of us desire to have influence at some point. Yes, we want to pay the bills. Yes, we want to stand. Yes, there wants to be a sense of stability. But we're all hoping at some point we're going to have influence. Yet sometimes Revelation feels like it has nothing to say about it. Well, we've taken a while, and it's taken a little bit of a while to get here, but tonight is all about what is it that we do. Last week, we said that in a lot of ways, before we ask that, what we need to do is we need to ask the question, how long? And we need to sit a little bit before we launch in. All of us, we want to do something, we want to do something now that makes an impact, that that somehow gets us some immediate feedback. Well, now we're going to start talking about that. And what we're going to be told that we do has unbelievable influence. In fact, it's unstoppable. But the problem is, it's going to feel like it's weak, like it's ineffective, like it's not doing anything. And so we're going to have to unpack that. But if unless we understand the connection between them, we're going to miss the very best that God has for us. And the very best that God has actually for the spheres of influence in which we live so we're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to have to unpack that. We're going to, uh, we're going to uh, do that by listening to a number of voices. The first of those being Ron, who's going to uh, start us off. But let me just pray as we, as we jump into this. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this book. Um, it, it is a daunting book. It's a crazy book at some times. And yet, Lord, I thank you for how you've um, shown me that it is a book full of hope. That it is a book that is um, full of good news. That it is a book that calls us into places of uh, courage. That it is a book about the transformation of the world. Lord, I pray that we be able to hear it. Lord, your spirit inspired it uh, many years ago. And we pray that that same spirit that is alive Mm -hmm. today, Lord, would speak into our hearts. So that we might hear what it is that that you want to say to us through this ancient book tonight. Mm -hmm. So we pray for this in your name.
1: Amen. Hey guys, great to be with you again tonight, um, and I just want to, want to tell you how important and how gratifying uh, it's been for me, and it continues to be for me, to be here and to be sharing this uh, 10-week series with you, um, and one of the things that I'm really excited about as we've kind of passed the halfway point, I think that we're at week 6 out of 10 tonight, um, But as we pass the halfway point, I think the questions of what do we do? How do we respond? uh, Is there a meaningful way to live out some of this vision that the book of Revelation offers us? Is there a way to do that in a meaningful, redemptive way in our world? And what excites me and, and part of some of the things we've got packed into tonight and going forward for the rest of our time together begins to answer those questions and more than anything else, I hope it stirs ideas and creativity for you. I honestly believe that each of us can have our own distinctive, unique, creative way of engaging the world with the good news of Jesus as Israel's Messiah come for the entire world and the entire creation. And in Revelation chapter 11, I want to take just the next sort of 9 to 12 minutes unpacking what's going on in this particular chapter. And, uh, and you know to be honest with you, and, and I think Brenna's kind of got it up here in chunks of text that we'll kind of read through and make some comments on. Um, but just before we get into reading it and then talking about it, I, I want to say that on the one hand, I think when we first start with John's Apocalypse, we desperately want someone to come and tell us that all these crazy and bizarre signs and images and symbols, have some larger message that actually makes sense and is coherent, when on the surface it doesn't seem like that. And uh, and John uh, did a great job of that in the first week or two, talking about symbols and imagery as an important function of apocalyptic literature. But here's the really weird thing about Revelation 11. There's lots of strange symbols, lots of strange language, but if we continue what we've been doing... If we keep unpacking it and asking questions, where does John, the author of Revelation, get this stuff from? And why does he put it together in this way? It actually starts to make sense in a way that's uncomfortable, I think, for a lot of us. And I wonder if some of us, the reaction might not be in about 12 minutes. Can you just put all this back in the box and just let it be kind of that weird vision that we don't have to worry about? Um, But what I want to do is kind of unpack this a little bit. There are lots of symbols and images from the Old Testament that the author of Revelation uses here. But there's a form that you're already familiar with from other parts of the Bible that I want you to be thinking of, even though the words don't appear on the screen. Remember, one of the favorite ways that Jesus communicated truth was in parable form. Right. He told people stories that had either real-life analogies or symbolically stood for something else in the kingdom of God. And I'm going to suggest to you that Revelation 11 is not a prediction of the future in terms of characters are going to do these weird and wild fire-breathing things. Rather, Revelation 11 is a parable. It's a parable of the mission of the church of Jesus Christ. It's a parable of the history of the church, But it's also a parable about us and our potential participation in this unstoppable kingdom of God. Right. So let's start reading. We're going to start with just the first two verses. And I will grant my two witnesses. This, I think, is the start of the parable. Right. Parable of the two witnesses, we might call it. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for one thousand two hundred sixty days wearing sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. All right. Now, already there's a ton here. First of all, I will grant my two witnesses authority. This is God telling John, the author of Revelation, that whoever this is, whoever these two witnesses are, they will have Yahweh's authority. All right. I'm going to suggest to you that they represent us. But where, do the two witness, where does the two witness idea come from? Well, it actually goes back to the law of Moses, where Moses established a way of hearing complaints and establishing sort of a court of justice in ancient Israel. And the rule was that every case, every argument to be legitimate had to have two witnesses to corroborate that it was in fact true. So if you said something or claimed something, you had to have two witnesses. And if you could come up with two legitimate witnesses, what you said could stand in this court. All right. So John, the author of Revelation, is simply borrowing that image. And he says, here's what's going to stand for truth in the world. Two witnesses speaking with my authority. All right? So the first thing I want you to see is I think he's talking about the people of God, the church of Jesus as his two witnesses in the world. And then he says they're going to have authority to prophesy for 1,260 days. And, you know, to be honest with you, uh, Pastor John here, I I feel like I now have to keep making the the distinction between this John and the John of Revelation. But Pastor John was talking about um, this idea that um, people have done weird things with Revelation. And numbers in Revelation are particularly prone to that. So people have tried to extrapolate or anticipate the future and said, well, 1260 days, that's about three and a half years. And when is that going to start? And what's that going to look like when it ends? And they almost are trying to count the days off on a calendar up to 1260. The question is, where does that, that number come from? And it comes from Daniel chapter 8 and a few other places after that in the book of Daniel. And what Daniel's visions are doing, and the reason they use, and by the way, there are several parallel frames of time. You can also see in Daniel a reference to three and a half years. You can also see in Daniel a reference to 42 months. You can also see a reference to 1260 days. Does anybody know what the common thread is? More or less, they're all exactly the same period of time. Three and a half years, right? 1260 days. So where does that number come from or what does it symbolize or signify? Well, in Daniel's visions, Daniel operates with this common Jewish sense that the number seven or seven seasons or sections of time represent God's full working in human history. Everything is wrapped up in this apocalyptic number seven. Three and a half is smaller than seven. Three and a half is inside of seven. And what John's really what this John is doing with these numbers is creatively saying, much like Daniel did, this period of time is limited. It's boundaried. It won't go on forever. I've designated a specific appointed time for my witness to be effective, my witnesses to be effective. All right. Sackcloth is a reference to the common, uh, sorry, the common dress that was worn when prophets brought Yahweh's message to Israel. And this is the language of repentance. So these are prophets announcing the message of God in the world for a limited period of time. And it's not so much that the time is really short but that the time is known and boundaried by God. And then in verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord. These are images that come from the book of Zechariah. So here's the thing I want you to see. Two witnesses, two olive trees, two lampstands. They basically represent standing for God's message in the world. And this will be done for a specific period of time. Second section of this text are verses 5 and 6. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Anyone who wants to harm them must be killed in this manner. Sounds gross. They have authority to shut the sky. That's really important. So that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. I want you to think who in the Old Testament was associated with that thing. The shutting of the sky so that no rain could fall. Just think about it for a moment. And they have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Right. Again, sounds gross. But who do you know from the Old Testament that was responsible over water and potentially turning it into blood and uttering a word and plagues would come. Right. So we have two different kinds of people. And these are the two witnesses. So let me just ask you this question. Shutting the sky, no rain. Who's that? It's Elijah. Exactly right. Having authority over water and uttering plagues. Who's that? Moses. Right. You have two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, and the author of Revelation is saying, Guess what, Christians? Guess what, followers of Jesus? You have the opportunity to live out in your own context the mission and the ministry of Moses and elijah in other words what jesus is saying to these christians in the first century and what jesus says to us in 2011 is that at least potentially we have the opportunity to stand in the same place that moses and elijah did let me ask you this question about moses when you think about the plagues and all that stuff what was moses really doing during that whole time of water into blood and plagues where, what's the context? What's he been asked by God to do? Where does he have to go? Yet yeah, deliverance, freeing Israel. Who's he speaking to? The most powerful man on the planet at the time. Here's Moses, right? A former Egyptian criminal, former prince, but former criminal. And he's been asked by Yahweh to speak truth to power. I think one of the things John's apocalypse is urging us to do is say, people of God, you have the authority, you have the opportunity to speak truth to power. Not asking us to be idiots, not asking us to make fun of people, but simply to say we stand for restoration and redemption and wholeness. We stand with the victim, we stand for the oppressed, and we speak truth to power. And if you take the words of Jesus seriously from chapter one, do not be afraid. You can speak truth to power without fear. Precisely what Pastor John's been calling running into the chaos, right? Embracing the brokenness and bringing God's message of reconciliation. Elijah, known for shutting the sky. What was Elijah's calling? What was he doing when fire fell from heaven and when the sky was shut? Does anybody remember? Remember? He's speaking, that's exactly right, Troy, he's speaking against idolatry. He's challenging false worship. You understand, these are the two witnesses in the world, Moses and Elijah, speaking truth to power, delivering people who are oppressed, and standing against injustice and idolatry. And guys, here's the point of Revelation 11, right? Right? I don't have some scary doomsday scenario to tell you that someday there will actually be two people running around the planet going, right, shooting bolts of lightning and and fire everywhere and blood into water. This is apocalyptic, symbolic language that says, guess what? When you stand with Jesus, the slaughtered lamb at the center of the throne room, when you stand with him, when you stand for the poor and the oppressed, when you stand for the message of God, you have authority and power. Quickly, let's go to chapters, uh, verses 7 to 10. When they have finished their testimony, and now, I mean, so far it sounded very triumphant, right? But now, listen, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is prophetically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified for three and a half days. Here's this three and a half number again, now being used with a different segment of time. Again, not literal, simply saying for a boundaried, limited period of time, right? For three and a half days, members of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refused to let them be placed in the tomb. By the way, in the ancient world, particularly in a Jewish context, there's nothing more degrading and there's nothing more ignoble than having your corpse exposed after you're dead. Right? You can find all kinds of examples in early Jewish writings. The book of Tobit in the Catholic Bible is a great example. One of the most important things Tobit believed he did as someone who loved Yahweh was to bury the bodies of fellow countrymen who had been exposed, right? So this is the ultimate indignity, all right? And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and have Christmas, right? Celebrating and exchanging presents because these two prophets had been a torment to the inhabitants of the earth. And the point of the author here is when you speak truth to power, when you challenge idolatry, not everyone's going to be happy. So you might as well get used to that idea, right? Let's quickly move on to the final section. But after the three and a half days, in other words, God knows, God numbers, it's limited. After the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, resurrection, and they stood on their feet. And those who saw them were terrified. Another way to sit, to translate that terrified, they had great fear. And some people debate whether this is positive fear, like the fear of the Lord, or whether this is just freaked out of your mind, scared. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Right? Now, Let me just summarize everything in these 13 in these 10 or 11 verses, verses 3 to 13, by saying the following four things about witness. This is what it means to witness. It is not I mean, it could include, but witnessing is not sort of, you know, you've got to go somewhere and be really scared for Jesus. Right. Knocking on doors, handing out tracts. What is witness, according to the author of Revelation? First, witness simply means representing God. Right. Jesus in chapter one was described as the faithful witness. Antipas, the one person with a name in the book of Revelation in chapter two, who was killed for his faith, a martyr, was called my faithful witness Antipas. Right. Faithfully being a witness means representing God. And a witness is a person that God says, this is my person on the street in Seattle in 2011. Right. Representing God. Witness, secondly, is always effective. And I love what Pastor John said right at the start here when he talked about the fact that this is an unstoppable mission, but it may not look like it. It may have the appearance of something that's quite weak or ineffective. You may feel like I do speak truth to power in the place that I work or in the community that I live. I do try to stand up for the rights of those who are oppressed on and on. We could think of examples and nothing ever changes. And the point of the book of Revelation is to say faithful witness. That's the thing. Effective witness just means not turning and running. It means standing there speaking truth to power challenging idolatry and false worship third witness will suffer hostility as as gratifying and as vindicating as witness can be it also carries with it the possibility of hostility and i guess you know i'd love for our discussions to be just you know fuzzy warm light but we have to be honest and say are you prepared that standing for truth, speaking truth to power, challenging idolatry, may be painful, even in relationships at times. That's something we have to keep in mind. And finally, I want you to see from this text, true witness will be vindicated. Look at the reaction. Um, uh, look at the reaction in verse 13. You don't have to go back to it, Brenna. But it said, remember it said there was an earthquake. Remember from last week, an earthquake is the judgment of God, right? 7,000 people died, and the rest of the city feared God and gave him glory. Most people estimate that there were probably about 70,000 people in Jerusalem at that time, which is probably the city that's in mind. And some people have speculated to suggest that faithful witness is going to be at least 90% effective. Now, how many of us tend to think that witness is that positively effective, right? We think if only a few poor sinners and souls come in, oh, thank God. And, I mean, obviously, every person is important to God. But the author of Revelation wants you to know big picture. True witness is vindicated. And the very last thing in chapter 11, the author tells us this in verses 15 to 19. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. Do you remember what Jesus' prayer in Matthew 6 was? Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Revelation 11 is the answer to the prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And the way we get there is by faithfully standing with God like Moses and Elijah. Does that make sense? Thanks, Ron. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, we're going to take a look at a um, a video clip. And the reason... um, reason is, is that I think Ron's helped us understand what this text is about, I, I hope. He helped us to begin to make sense of it. And the, the clip I want to bring up is a, one of these post-apocalyptic uh, movies. It's actually one I like, partly because I have a man crush on Denzel, uh, and I'm unashamed of it. Um, it's the it's the book it's the book of Eli and and the reason why I want to bring it up because I want us to start I want us to get our imaginations going one and I want us to think about what does this actually look like because this word witness often is really. Um, It's challenging. Sometimes it's hard to know. It's hard to not have a narrow definition of it. So I want to do two things. I want us to think, what does it look like? What's effective? What is something that that is fruitful? And then I want us to expand our idea of what that looks like, because I believe that this idea of witness actually intersects with our sense of calling and with our vocation. and actually is about everything we do. So I want us to do expand. We're going to we're going to get some other voices in here. Uh, partly through video to help us do that. But first of all, we'll take a look at this uh, clip. Now, here's what's going on, okay? Basically, you got a world devastated probably by nuclear war. It is a, it is a, a brutal environment. It is an extremely dehumanizing environment. It's an environment where the people who are strong are the ones who win, and they basically dominate. It, it is, if you can take something from somebody, you do, because you don't know if you'll actually have a meal. It's a world in which a tiny little bottle of shampoo is an unbelievable luxury to have. Uh, it's a world where people have, um, it's barely sort of uh, kind of getting by. And there is uh, one particular strong man in this case. Uh, his name is Carnegie. And he's looking, he's looking for something that actually uh, Denzel's character has. Now, Denzel, you know, <laughs> to go with the whole movie, I mean, he can kick some serious butt, right? Right. And he does. And yet, that's actually not the turning point of the movie. What you're going to see is what I think is the turning point of the movie. It's where you begin to see a power that is actually more effective than his uh, machete-wielding abilities, which are amazing. So, (laughs) here's two questions as you look at this and you think about this. What do you notice, and we're going to break into groups and talk about it real quickly afterwards. What do you notice... Do you notice a different narrative, perhaps, than what this girl um, uh, in this scene uh, interacted with? And what do you notice, if we think about witness, what, what do you notice um, about what he does that is effective or, or not effective? And then we'll, we'll talk about it. Where we're at now is that, the, that he has sort of been locked up. Um, nobody knows that he's actually carrying um, this particular book, uh, which is actually the Bible in this movie. Um, and this guy, Carnegie, he's trying to manipulate him. So he takes this girl and he sends, he sends her in. Go, go pleasure him so that I can kind of win him over to my side. Because there's something about this guy that is unbelievable, that is intriguing. He can't be manipulated like um, some of the other people um, that this strong man has. So uh, you see this. He's, sort of, he's kind of a prisoner and kind of not. And So uh, take a look at this interaction as this girl goes in um, to try to, um, to sleep with him. All right. Turn to one, maybe two people. Say what, just just share. What's your impression? What seemed, what worked, what what caught your eye? What seemed to work about that interaction? When did things change? Turn to one person, and we'll come back in just a second. If there isn't someone around, go find somebody. What what worked? All right, far too quickly, but see if uh, see what. Did you notice what was it? What was intriguing about that interaction? What was perhaps uh, powerful about that interaction? Um, that seemed to have, seemed to be, um, so- something was powerful that was going on in the room. What was your impressions? Maybe it was a hard question, but let's, let's just see. Any ideas? Any ideas? What stood out? Yeah. So there's a sense that she, it's hard for her to kind of connect the, the two things. There's a reality that somehow that he's talking about that she's gone. I just don't necessarily get it. Anything else? Yep. Yeah. It was, there was a surprise, wasn't it? There was kind of a manipulation. You tell me this, and I'll tell you that. And then suddenly there was a there was a kind of a change where we sort of went towards it with grace that she didn't really know what to do with. Yeah. There was a yeah there is in this place there was it, you get you get something to eat you grab it and you eat it quick before anybody else can so there was, like it was just it almost was inconceivable to think about basic sharing, so, or you know, sharing with one another. Yeah. Yeah. One, one last one. Yeah. You do get this real curiosity from her, don't you? It's kind of like what in the world are you doing? Um, and I, I think, I think you do. I think you start to see it. I mean, it starts with him in some ways that we didn't have time to go into. It It starts with him saying, look, I'm not going to sleep with you. And her begging him to say, don't send me out or I'll be beat. Essentially to this, to this. Now there's something intriguing about this book to now. He's actually, he's not just not taking advantage of her, but he's actually sharing with her. Um, the thing that was intriguing about that is just one of those, it, it's you look at the interaction. And I think what happens when we think about witness is that sometimes it feels like it has to be, it is this huge thing. When I think more than anything, it's in really small little moments, little small moments where of surprise, of grace, of sort of a generosity, of maybe giving somebody a, a picture into a reality that they actually, they actually don't, um, they can't even conceive of. There's three things I think for us that I just want to highlight for us um, just to maybe get our imaginations going uh, about this. And one of the, fir- the first things is to talk about this idea of what's actually possible. If we were to think about our, what is it our, our vocation of witness, what is actually possible for this woman? The idea of sharing, of being grateful, uh, of actually being grateful for companionship on a cold night like that, inconceivable. Not even possible. And I think what you begin to see is that sometimes part of what our witness is, is actually allowing someone to um, believe that something is possible, different than they understand. Um, sociologists will talk about one in particular named Peter Berger talks about um, plausibility, that a lot of times um, what we struggle with is that we don't know what's actually possible. So, you know, you could have a number of different sort of claims or truths. It doesn't have anything to do with whether um, they're true or not. It's not saying anything about that. But if we've never actually seen something or actually heard something, we don't know what's even possible. One of the things I think we do with Witness is that what we, is we show people, we demonstrate, and we, we can tell people that there is a different reality than maybe they understand. Uh, it's what we do sometimes when we come in and we do, and we worship. What we're saying is, despite everything that we interact with in the week, we come and we worship a God that loves us, has given us grace, not because we've done a single thing, and actually is empowering us and walking with us even when it feels difficult. What we're saying what we're, is we'll we're remind ourselves, there is actually another reality than sometimes what we're told all the time. And just because it, we're told it, Just because we see it doesn't necessarily mean that that's true. It could be possible that there's another reality. Some of what we do in our witness is about simply saying, I want to show you something, a possibility that maybe you've never um, even conceived before. The second thing I would think about witness just to think about is that it's seriously credible. That witness, I think, is tied to vocation, which is tied to mission. It has to do with, which actually ends up being about our identity. Our identity, again, is to have some sort of influence in, in the world at, to some extent, whether it be at home with just kids or whether that be in the in the marketplace or whether it be uh, in an office or in our volunteer. We want to make some sort of positive impact. It has a lot to do with our identity, our core identity is about that, no matter who we are. Well, one of the things that um, has been interesting over the last couple of years is to rethink what is the core identity of the church? Because when we understand the core identity of the church, it has all kinds of implications on what we do. Um, Dr. is Dr. Daryl Gooder is somebody who's actually been thinking about the identity of the church for a long time, especially around this idea of witness and honestly, how we often get it wrong. And so I want to play just a quick clip from him as he talks about what does it look like. Let's rethink kind of according to our identity what witness is all about. Let's take a look at that. Uh,
2: first of all, it's, it's rooted in, in uh, the explicit theology of Luke Acts. And particularly in uh, our Lord's statement to the disciples on the Mount of the Ascension, you shall be my witnesses. And the important thing about that statement is that it is not a command. It's a description. So we don't make a choice about being witnesses. It's not a question to say, well, I'm going to now decide to be a witness and do it. We are witnesses, whatever we're doing, and whether we're doing it consciously in response to Christ. The only issue that we really grapple with is whether we're very good witnesses, very reliable witnesses. And it seems to me that the thrust of the New Testament's formation of witnessing communities is on that issue. The integrity, the credibility, the usefulness of a community's life before a watching world as demonstration, as evidence of the truth, not only the truth, the availability of the gospel, that this healing love that this community celebrates is also an invitation, that this love can be shared, that this healing is intended for all. So Witness is, in a very legal sense, giving evidence about something we regard to be true. And it is... What we're doing all the time and what we're doing as a gathered church needs to focus on what kind of living, what kind of acting, and what kind of speaking can be used by God's Spirit to draw more people into this vocation. The key of that, of course, in Acts 1 8 is that you shall be my witnesses. The key is that we belong to Jesus Christ, we're called by Jesus Christ, we are recreated through God's work in Christ, and therefore our witness, in one way or another, is always focused on the reality of Jesus Christ, both as Savior and Lord, as the one to whom all authority is given in heaven and earth. That event is the good news. The person and work of Jesus Christ, in the claim that it is intended to be known and responded to by all humans everywhere, in all times. It is a universal good news and our witness is to be to its goodness the the problem we're dealing with and why the uh, struggle with witness is so real is that there are so many ways over the history of western christendom that our witness has not been credible that bad news has been deformed and become bad good news has become bad news and this is what we have to address how do we how are we equipped as a community to live out this, this healing love of god as genuinely good news and how do we do it in such a way that it is not uh, coerced on our part, it's not manipulated, but it is who we are, and it's how we live. I love what he
0: had to say. You know, The, 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 the question is, is the credibility. And I think if we're going um, to talk about the credible witness, I think just a couple of things to highlight. I think, one, that it, there has to be some sense of connection. And by connection, I think when our witness isn't credible, and I was talking with a group of people that uh, we were studying this uh, together, and we were talking about this whole idea of witness, that sometimes witness goes weird when it's sort of relationally disconnected from a particular person or a particular situation. And it can go in one of two ways. And this is the examples that came up. One of two ways. One, it gets so syrupy sweet that people kind of go, Really? you really have no idea the kind of life I'm living in. Like, that just doesn't feel credible. Like, it's just, it, it's too, it might be nice, but it just sounds like you're living, you're living in a, a naive reality. On the other hand, usually, you, sometimes what we do is we see witness in a negative sense, it comes down to, as incredibly judgmental. So, for instance, the example was thrown out, as we were talking together, of blaming the earthquake in Haiti on Satan worship. Well, they deserve it. And because they worship Satan in Haiti, so that, therefore, they got an earthquake. And at one point you go, really? This doesn't feel credible. And partly because do you actually know what's going on in Haiti? Do you actually have any sense of connection, relational or even just informational about what's going on in Haiti? For instance, they're sitting under a major, major fault line. That might have something to do with it, right? Right. So we, we start talking about witness. Well, let me tell you about God and, and that this is such good news. Well, you know, it's because of saint worship. And you go, well, or they're sitting on their fault line that has been ready to blow for years. Of course. Maybe that has something to do with it. So there's, there can be a disconnection. I think often we get into trouble sometimes when we're not relationally um, uh, connected. The second thing, though, is that... That being said, it doesn't mean that when we we share witness that it's going to be easy. And and Ron talked a lot about this. I don't want to say a lot, but it's going to include some adrenaline. Your heart's probably going to, you know, don't be surprised if there are times when you feel like your heart's going to thump. um, When you're going to start sweating, you're going to get clammy hands and you're not really sure. It's going to get the adrenaline because at some point, um, really what you're probably saying is that you are saying something different than the people around you. We're social creatures. We want to go along with the crowd. So sometimes what it looks like is that there's a giant hate fest going on around you. And you're kind of like, nah, I don't really feel good about that. Or maybe there's a, another reality. On the, other a hand, so, on the other hand, sometimes um, you get interrupted by beautiful voices. Uh, On the other, sometimes you're saying, you know what, what's going on right now actually isn't good, and somebody just doesn't want you to burst their bubble. We have to be ready that sometimes we're going to get some pushback, because we might be asking people to consider something that they don't want to um, consider. The second is that it needs to be honest. Um, And the most honest thing that you can say often carries with it a yes or a no, and that's what Brenna was actually queuing up. I want—I I want to hear from another voice, and this is a voice that is talking about uh, jazz and music, and I think it's—it's um, it's worth listening to, partly because uh, this guy just sounds awesome. <laughs> Dr. Cornell West. This is actually uh, out of a movie called *Call and Response*, which I actually think is—it's um, about the the rise of slavery in our world. And it's worth seeing uh, for that, but it's actually worth seeing because you'll be inspired because what they actually, it's, it is not an explicitly Christian film, but it is thoroughly Christian in the ways that we've actually been talking about apocalypse. Well, the the last thing is if it's going to be credible, it's got to be honest. And at some point we have to be able to say, this is what is true. And it can be really hard to talk about what is true. Just like what he said. I love it. It's, it's honest. Truth is scary and it's liberating. We don't like either one. One of the ways that um, I've, I actually ask couples when we're getting together for premarital that comes out of conversations that Dave and I have had is what's the most truthful thing you can say? I'd be a way to say it. And so, a way I'll phrase this to couples is as you, as you kind of, you know, you're starting a new life together, what do you want to take from your parents? What did they give you? What do you want to change? Because that's honest. You probably got something amazing from your folks. You probably saw something even in a perhaps a bad family situation there 's probably something you could call out if if, if we 're going to talk about being honest you 've got to talk about the good and the bad, and then what 's the thing that you 're going to change? How do we think about being honest and we be in the middle that we need to be people who can say have a, it's a discipline, I think, of saying a no and a yes so that we can stand against some things and also in the same breath kind of go, and I'm going to say yes to this. You got it. And what I love about this example is is that what we're calling out is things that resonate within the church, and yet we're looking at it out in the world. We can look at it through jazz, and there are some things that we can say in music, no. And there are some things we can go, yes. And what it does is it gets us actually in, out of a defensive position where we're simply saying no the last i want to look at one last clip and it's and the last thing is that it's extravagantly hopeful one of the things about revelation is that so often we don't get to the end twenty one, twenty two, and so all we hear is that revelation is a no and i think witness oftentimes is we just need to go out and tell the world how bad it is we need to know what the yes is So uh, I've actually began uh, videoing a a few people to say, why don't you just just reflect, just begin to dream a little bit. As you look at the very, as you look at like Isaiah 65, these pictures, these images of the end, or, or Revelation 21, 22, what do you see? Help us dream a little bit so that we can begin to think about what is the yes? What is the big yes that we could perhaps put our whole life into? That on one hand, it is say yes to Jesus Christ. It starts there. And yet what I've discovered is that actually if you just, if you stop there, you miss so much of what the Bible actually says. So I asked Ken, as I said, you know, reflect out of Isaiah 65. And he kind of, to help us maybe think a little bit, he said, let me, let me just come up with uh, policy statements. And, I, and he's talking about Isaiah. It's a passage he loves, has a lot of connection uh, with Revelation 21 and 22. So let's, take a, let's listen.
3: And I see God's uh, kingdom policy agenda being interpreted in this passage um, a a communication of God's intended future that He invites us into as it as um, as Co-healers of this world in which we Here's live. Here's the passage: in. "Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will be, will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind." He's conveying this great reversal um, that is happening. And if we read it with Jesus's eyes, we're saying that we're seeing that this reversal is imminently now. It's not a reversal that we have to wait for in the future. It certainly, will be fulfilled in the future. But the reversal it is says, happening now. Never again will there be in it, Jerusalem, new Jerusalem, an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. And what I, what I hear in that is a policy statement that defines a health policy, that calls us to pay attention to the very old and the very young. Then he goes on, he says, they will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. It's a housing policy or a property policy that suggests that the way we relate to property is to um, enjoy the fullness of them as we own them. That um, It's a statement against oppression and exploitation with regards to housing. And um, for as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their, their hands. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. It's a labor policy that suggests that that um, we get a fair return for our labor and that there's some level of marketplace security. Um, they will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune there's a family welfare policy that suggests intergenerational uh, get well-being. this the wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox in god's kingdom policy agenda there's a criminal justice policy and a race relations policy that says but dust will be the serpent's food and what i see here is that when real reconciliation happens between those that are damaged by evil, then um, evil is starved.
0: Why do I bring this up? You could go in, you could study that passage uh, yourself if you want. You could maybe cheat can a little bit. I'm asking him to just say, what, what do you see? What do you dream about? And why do I bring that up? I bring it up because I want you to be people who begin to dream big bigger than probably what you've heard before about what God is about, what your own vocation is about, that begin to think, how do I actually join in with the redemption of the world? That, that your most important work isn't going to be what's inside this building necessarily, but it's what you do with the whole of who you are. And so as we begin to think about things like this, I, I love this, by the way, Arts and Culture Task Force. You can pick up one of these on the outside. I, I love that this has happened at this church. So on here, on the back... They're talking about what does it look like to apply a creative way of applying faith and wisdom in the world around us. So here's one that's coming up this weekend. Um, A faith response to global health needs. So as we think in particular um, in regards to health care, how can we we address some of the major health needs in this community? A couple weeks out, uh, we're going to talk about uh, the poorest families in the world live in rural areas dependent on the land that they don't own. Uh, This uh, gentleman from University of Washington, professor emeritus of law will discuss land ownership on the basis for development work such as literacy, clean water, nutrition. How do we understand um, how we become part of the solution? Uh, Last one, December 4th, ethics, business, and the bottom billions of the world's population. And it's gonna be a professor from Seattle Pacific University on how our discipleship journey uh, can inform our business decisions in today's present economic crisis. Why does this matter? Sometimes when we don't begin to have a vision about what God is about, we think things like health. And so if you're a doctor, if you're in business, if you're in law and you think about land, that's that we do those things because it's nice. But really, it doesn't matter. And what I want us to begin to to imagine is that it does matter and it explicitly matters that there are plenty of passages in the Bible that tell us that this is important to God and he's actually called us to to lean into those things. I don't know if any of these are for you or not, but I want us to begin to think bigger. What is it that God wants us to call, call us to? My prayer for you is that you be the kind of people that walk into all kinds of corners around this city and throughout the country, wherever you go. And in that little place, you bear witness to a God who is about love. A credible witness. A witness that begins to open people to, the, to possibilities that they never imagined. A witness that is honest. A witness that is extravagantly hopeful. That's what God has called you to do. And it's, that's what my prayer is for our community. As we begin to understand what Revelation is saying. Maybe you can see, I get fired up about this. Because when we take from revelation that the best thing we can do is bunker down and wait for the world to end, we are missing out on what God has fundamentally called every single one of us to do. And that is to be people who proclaim hope. Let's pray. Lord, thanks uh, for your word. Lord, it's a lot tonight. Um, Help us understand uh, what it means and how we begin to live into it. Um, Stretch our imaginations. Show us uh, what it is that you want to call us to um, in our own uh, spheres of influence. Pray this in your name.